I'm Christy Williams-Thunton. Today on This Week in Moab, we turn to the housing crisis and the ways our building codes and development norms frequently undermine our efforts to address the issues and add to climate woe. Moab currently faces multifaceted housing issues. There's an affordable housing shortage and wildly increased home prices, driven by a demand from the fastest-growing population, Grand County, in the fastest-growing state, Utah. From 2010 to 2020, the census found that Grand County's population grew by 4.8% to 9,669 people. Data shows that the county's growth is coming from more people moving in rather than current residents having more children. Moab City Planning Director Nora Shepard told Allison Hartford of Moab Sun News recently that there's another issue, the lack of employee or workforce housing from existing zoning, adding that the most profitable development to build in Moab right now is a luxury townhome for a second homeowner. Amid these tough challenges, the true costs of our practices, the materials we use, and the methods that we build with are inadvertently contributing to a warming planet and to our own problems. Um, But there are those working to give regulatory shape to a sustainable development model. And that brings us to today's guest, David Eisenberg, who talks about the power of the code to address not just the housing crisis, but the climate crisis. And David, we thank you for coming today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) It's especially a pleasure to be in your remote studio in Castle Valley, which is quite extraordinarily beautiful. Thank you. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about why you're in Moab, and I would love to hear you speaking uh, a little bit about why green building matters now more than ever. Yeah, well, so I'm, I, I came up here um, to attend the Rocky Mountain um, Natural Building Conference that just ended uh, on Saturday, a three-day conference that uh, um, included people from all, pretty much all over the U.S. and and uh, and Canada, and um, uh, it was a it was a really good conference, wonderful to reunite after the last year and a half or whatever. It was a conference that was scheduled for 2020 and. Mm-hmm didn't happen like tens of thousands of other events uh, for obvious reasons. So it was really great to see old friends and colleagues and meet a lot of new people, including a lot of young people doing really wonderful work. And um, and so, yeah, green building, it's kind of morphing into regenerative um building and design, which is not just thinking about, you know, having a smaller impact, you know, through the things that we build, but actually looking at how we can have a positive impact and build buildings that actually are beneficial, even to the climate. And uh, so there was, uh, there, there were some significant presentations around that. And as well as all kinds of things about 
a variety of natural building materials from earth and straw, hemp, um, lime, um, and and wood, and designing buildings that are comfortable and efficient and hopefully affordable. Um, do, so. do describe a little bit of the landscape that is rife with the problems that you, in your work as a... Um, a sustainability guy uh, attends to address. Yeah, so I've I've been at this. Uh, so I run a little nonprofit organization that I co-founded in 1992, called the Development Center for Appropriate Technology, which has been less of a development center than a a support uh, organization for a lot of people developing a lot of different alternative solutions to some of the problematic aspects of the built environment. And that led to, I ended up on the National Board of Directors of the U.S. Green Building Council for two terms. And while I was there, because of my work with alternative building materials um, and the issues around building codes and standards, trying to actually enable people to be able to use those things, or get permits for those kinds of buildings. Um, I, I ended up founding and then chairing for nine years through two iterations the U.S. Green Building Council Code Committee. And one of the great things that happened as a result of that and other work I had been doing was I actually got to sign a memorandum of understanding between the boards of directors of the International Code Council the National Organization of Building Code Officials, and the U.S. Green Building Council to work together. And in part by helping um, the code people understand that safeguarding public health, safety, and welfare from hazards attributable to the built environment was actually a larger scope of work than what they had been focused on um, and the things they thought of as life safety included things that they might not have initially thought were important, like energy efficiency and renewable energy. And part of it is just this shift of paying attention to things like toxicity of materials, what happens away from the building site that enables a building to be built, where hazards are being created somewhere else in order to minimize hazards in the building. Um, like, all of the, give us an example. Well, so, um, yeah, I mean, you could look at a lot of supply chains, um, you know, including for energy, but for buildings. But if, if you think about the materials or what happens as a result of, you know, a material like Portland cement and concrete, you know, if you think about climate change, some somewhere around eight percent, six to eight percent of human contribution to global warming is coming from the production and use of of cement. And so there are efforts underway and some really interesting things happening in in actually starting to require low carbon impact concrete. In, in the building code. And um, a lot of things have, have shifted 
um, over the last decade or so uh, towards greater recognition that we shouldn't have toxic building materials, that we need to pay attention, more attention to things like ventilation and indoor air and environmental quality. The pandemic is having a really big impact on changing codes related to ventilation and thinking about, especially in commercial buildings, you know, thinking about whether the way we create heating, ventilating, and air conditioning systems in buildings are either reducing or increasing, you know, the risk of airborne vectors, you know, like viruses, etc. And so it's been, a lot of things have been changing, and it's encouraging to see that some of those changes are in the right direction and they're accelerating, and they need to accelerate because there's a lot that we need to change in a relatively short period of time. And so there have been code barriers to improvements for public uh, <clears throat> safety, health, and welfare in the building code. Uh, and this dry minutia that's so important is what you and your cohorts have been working on. And that's not the only thing that was happening here in Moab uh, over the weekend. You were discussing a broad variety, probably including affordability uh, and present here uh, as a, what, a host perhaps even was the Community Rebuilds Organization? Is yeah. that so? So, so Emily Niehaus, um, your mayor, <laughs> um, you know, started community rebuilds years ago, and um, I got to know her really just as she was beginning that, and because she focused on using straw bale wall systems and other things and has continued to evolve. Community Rebuilds is an awesome organization and a tremendous resource for not just for Moab, you know, but for everyone, everywhere. Because she's been thinking about how we create affordable housing in a way that builds more than housing. I I was one of the authors of the Straw Bale House book back in the early 90s, I think in 93. And one of the interesting things about straw bale construction is it is sort of a, has more of a communitarian sort of feel to it. In the, the technology is different than a lot of other building systems or, or building materials. And it enables a lot of people who, has enabled a lot of people who didn't think they could ever build anything to find out that, in fact, they can. I used to, when people would ask me to autograph a copy of the Straw Bale House Book, one of my common signatures was to to houses that build people. And I think that's a way of thinking about almost anything that we're doing, you know, human activities, we can do them in ways that are beneficial to people and not just the things we're thinking we're working on or not. And most of the time in the economy that we have and the systems that we have, that's 
it, it, you know, it, it's not even that it's not a priority. It's that a lot of times just the way things are set up, it's kind of precluded. And one of the things that's really fabulous about the natural building movement is that <clears throat> a lot of these skills are are passed down <clears throat> for you know millennia, you know, preceding the industrial revolution and the you know the supply of materials, you know, that we think are the only way you can build or the only things you can use and in fact reintroducing a lot of these things earth and plasters <clears throat> i mean one of the things that has been observed multiple times by me and others is that we talk about these materials as alternative materials but <clears throat> there there was a point in time where all the industrial conventional materials were the alternatives to the way things had been done for a long time. And in many cases, they were better and more durable, you know, et cetera. But the evolution of a lot of the building systems that are in place now really had to do with eliminating labor, eliminating skill, and maximizing the profit of whatever industry or entity was supplying those things. And so we ended up with building systems that are the most efficient for the builders, not necessarily for people or the planet or the people who end up owning and operating those buildings or dwelling in them. Um, and so there's been a kind of long-standing disconnect between not just what buildings are, but what they do and what they do for their occupants and how well or not they serve that larger purpose. And one of the things about buildings is if they're built reasonably well, they tend to last a long time. And the more thoughtful and engaged and integrated into the places and purposes that they will serve, you know, the better the buildings actually are, even if they don't necessarily use all the best materials or the best technology that, you know, some of the best buildings in the world have been around for hundreds of years. And there are cities. I, I, I used to show in my, when I was showing, um, doing presentations to gatherings of code officials, a photograph of Bern, Switzerland, and I'd say, you guys talk about durability. You're looking at an 800-year-old city with 800-year-old buildings that had none of the modern materials and building systems that we think are essential. And, you know, and we want to talk about durability in terms of years. And, you know, what about durability for centuries? And what about the ability for the way we build cumulatively, the the aggregated and cumulative impact of the choices we're making and the things we're using? What, what if they're precluding our children and grandchildren from actually living on a planet or living lives with access to resources remotely like what we've been able to do or have? And it's... The, those are the 
the missing pieces in the in the things that build the people who do who create regulations around building whether it's building codes or standards or development codes or standards you know zoning and land use issues there's a bigger uh, there's a, a bigger set of issues there's a bigger set of values there's a bigger set of concerns that that last a very long time and that need to be considered that have moved to kind of the bottom of the list instead of and if it's going to be at the bottom it should be foundational actually those are the things we should start with not add in as afterthoughts after we've made a bunch of bad decisions about what it is we're going to do or we need or want so short-term profit still um, trumps these larger values, do you think, in the built community? Well, they Developers? often they, they often do. On the other hand, there are some developers who are amazing in having figured out that these are not opposites or they're not antithetical, that you can actually pay attention to all these things and build better construct, you know, really constructive developments that feed the things we want and you know there's that old thing about you know we name we name developments for the for for what was there before the development destroyed it and um in tucson there was a a development that was called wilderness estates it was actually wilderness estates one two and three and how ironic is that you know <laughs> But, you know, these things continue to happen. And one of the critical things that needs to happen is that when you see something you love being jeopardized, you know, or destroyed by something that maybe you want, you know, you have to be able to step back and sort of reevaluate your decision-making processes. And you need to be able to hold the people who are, you know, presumably protecting or safeguarding, you know, the public or the community. I mean, what are codes? They say that they're, you know, to safeguard public health, safety, and welfare from hazards attributable to the built environment. Well, those hazards aren't just that a building not fall down or burn down or electrocute people, you know, or... And give them a sick building syndrome yeah, or something. Yeah, all of those things. You, you know, if you're really going to safeguard the public, then you need to look at a whole other set of impacts. And one of the things that, I mean, climate change has been really, in a way, it's sort of the poster child for this issue of seeing a larger hazard then you can see through the microscope, you know, of, of looking at buildings through the regulations that we have. And what are the impacts of one building? Well, they're pretty small. But we build millions of buildings. And cumulatively, they're huge. And so if, if your eye is to that microscope looking at all the things we're requiring and you never take your eye away from it, and see what the aggregated, you know, upstream, downstream, cumulative impacts are, then you can build 
a lot of safe buildings that completely undermine the ability for us to have safe and healthy communities. And whether that's from fire or drought or, you know, floods or, you know, all these hazards that we're seeing more and more happening, um, we have to we have to do both things. We have to be able to see both the small things at the building scale and those larger cumulative consequences. And we design buildings for the historic climate that existed, you know, for the last few hundred years in a place while the climate is changing. And those buildings might be there for another hundred years and the climate that they're going to experience is going to be nothing like what they were designed for. So it's if we really care about safety and we care about durability and we care about buildings that really serve the people that dwell in them or use them, then we have to actually pay attention to what's changing. And there's a really encouraging thing that's happened. <clears throat> and it has to do with um, the embodied impact of of what we build. So if you think about the, 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 the beginning place to think about it is with energy. And now we're talking about carbon, so the climate impact. But people used to talk about embodied energy and operating energy for buildings. The embodied energy was all the energy that it required to acquire the materials, transport them, process them, transport them again, and incorporate them into a building. And so that's the sort of impact that happens before the building is finished or, you know, when it's finished. And then the operating energy, you know, that it takes to heat and cool and light and ventilate, etc. you know, and then whatever repair and maintenance stuff goes on, you know, th those are the operating impacts. I was one of those people who long ago started arguing with my energy efficiency friends that embodied energy was really important. And they would say, well, look, it's like 12, you know, 15% of the total life cycle energy of this building. Here's this huge number that represents operating energy. And embodied energy, it's almost trivial. It's just, and I would say, no, a gigantic number makes a big number look small. It's not small. It's important that we pay attention to what it's, you know, what we're investing, in, you know, in the front end, you know, and, and so I would say one of the arguments I made is, so, you know, you're both telling us that this number is unimportant because it's a small percentage, and you're trying to improve the energy efficiency, which, if you take that all the way to the end, so when you get to a, a net zero operating energy building, what's the percentage of embodied energy in that building? Well, it's almost all of it. And when we started talking about climate change, and we started talking about sort of the carbon or CO2 equivalents of these impacts, so you have the embodied carbon or embodied impact. And we're trying to build net zero operating energy buildings. And the things we're doing to get to net zero operating energy 
are dramatically increasing the embodied energy through foam insulation and high-tech, all these high-tech systems. And then at the end, we put renewable energy on them, and they, that has its own impact as well, and because they have to be manufactured out of materials that are mined and processed, etc., the same thing. So we, so we can look at this and go, okay, we need to pay attention to what what's actually happening. So a net zero a net zero operating energy building may or may not be a good thing because it depends on what you're building it with and what you're doing. And so one of our one of my friends and colleagues who presented one of the keynote talks at at this conference um, th- this week, um, Chris Magwood from from Canada, is a brilliant. Um, yeah, he started the Endeavor Center, which is a, a school for building, which is brilliant in, in Canada. Anyway, he's been working on this for a long time, and he has been focused on biogenic materials, or things like wood, straw, hemp, uh, cellulose, these, you know, grown materials, not mined materials, but um, that have carbon, molecular carbon, physically embodied in them. And there's this opportunity to build with these materials and sequester carbon, a lot of it, in a highly efficient building. And it's possible, and he's demonstrated this, to actually build really good buildings that sequester more carbon than 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 they use to be built. So they're actually carbon it's net possible to build net positive carbon <clears throat> buildings. And when you if you think about the timing of these impacts, if you build a net zero operating energy building, you've not only increased the the embodied impact of that building, but because you've reduce this increase of impact over time for operating energy, you've basically brought the full impact of the building to the present, which is the worst time to have that bigger impact. We need, in, in the next 10 years or so, we need to be eliminating those impacts. And so we're inadvertently missing the bigger picture. We think we're doing the right thing by going to net zero, but if we're not really operating energy, if we're not really focused on the impacts we're creating to get there, you know, then we may actually be amplifying the problem instead of solving it in the near term. And so the great news is that the work that Chris Magwood and a bunch of his colleagues have been doing um, has actually attracted the attention of the Canadian government and, and big organizations in the U.S., and there's a um, there's a, a website. There's an organization. It's called Builders for Climate Action, and you can find that online. There's some wonderful videos and resources and links to other other information um, uh, about this if you want to learn more about it. Um, so that's a. I think it's a really hopeful thing because 
we're beginning to see this greater awareness, you know, like a step back and a step back and beginning to see the work that we're doing as really important. One of the things about natural building materials is they tend to have lower impacts, you know, because they're less processed. And it depends on what they are and where they come from. But one of the things about, say, building with using earth, whether it's for adobe or rammed earth or cob or these various things or plaster, um, is that if you're careful about the additives that you use to stabilize or to use these materials, they can sort of be reused, reborn, used again. They could. There are a lot of these building materials that can just go back into the soil, into nature without without harm. You know, which which makes these buildings even better in the long term, and 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 often they're, you know, they can be maintained without having to use high-tech, you know, chemical-intensive materials to, you know, to repair and maintain them over time. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to David Eisenberg, who's here uh, just at the culmination of a natural building conference that happened here in Moab, Utah, just recently, and talking about the uh, ideal built environment if you could, if you had the wand and you could say, oh, dear Moab, I've loved you forever. Here's what you need. A lot of, you know, a lot of people would wave it over the planning and zoning and say, oh, let's uh, see if we can fix this situation. Do you have any opinions as a, a Moab lover, if you could uh, do some little ideal deal? Well, I think there, there, there are a lot of things. The solutions are always place-based and specific um, that there aren't um, well there are, there are some principles that are universal there's applications of those principles that are by necessity you know different in different places and different communities um, but but I, I think you know um, looking at the the kinds of models that are emerging, you know, Community Rebuilds has done some really extraordinary stuff and they continue to sort of push the envelope on figuring out how to work within within the rules that exist, you know, how you can build more affordable housing, how you can house the houseless community, how you can, you know, serve, you know, the sort of traditionally disadvantaged you know, communities, how you can create, you know, workforce housing that pe- people who actually, you know, work for a living and make an ordinary wage could actually afford somewhere to live. This is a crisis in Moab right now. And so it's a sincere question about where to sort of enter into the circle of the issue. Yeah. Where? Well, where? You, you know, the so I know that there's um, there are things going on that have to do with ADUs, accessory dwelling units. Mother-in-laws, known as. Which basically lets someone with um, an existing house and room on their property to build a small additional unit um, to be able to do that more affordably and legally. Um, And whether that's 
something that gets rented out or whether it enables them to um, house a family member um, or, you know, or maybe... A working couple that can't afford yeah. 2000 bucks a month yeah. for a and, whatever. And, and it also there's the potential to, for it to supplement mm -hmm. the income of people, you know, who, who are there as well. Um, you know, the, it, it can be tricky. You have to, you know, the, you don't want those to just turn into Airbnbs or something, you know, right. where right. They, they're just, you know. Perpetuating the problem. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. But, but, you know, there's, <clears throat> there's a lot of potential for that. The, the tiny house... Um, movement is um, is is a and the small house movement is, is an encouraging thing to see you know more and more people recognizing that you don't need as much as as we're told we should have you know in terms of square footage etc um, with helping get tiny houses in the building code um, and so it's in, now in the National uh, Residential Building Code, the, which is called the International uh, Residential Code. There's an appendix Q, which is for tiny houses. And it's being, every code cycle, it's three-year cycles to update it. It's getting expanded and, and, um, and uh, refined. Um, but it's enabling a lot of people, you know, to build smaller houses, you know, and including on smaller lots or put multiple buildings on, you know, a piece of property that, you know, can be affordable. It's also enabling um, the ability to build a, a kind of a starter house, you know, for a young couple that could be added onto eventually, you know, so you don't have to build a gigantic thing that costs a huge amount of money in order to get started with having a house. It's really interesting in other parts of the world, you know, that's how people build. You know, they build what they can afford to build. They leave rebar sticking out all over the place. And, you know, and the intention is that when they're, finances enable them to do it they'll or or having more kids or whatever <clears throat> requires them to somehow add on to their their house they do and <clears throat> houses in a lot of parts of the world are less commodified and so land ownership in much of the world is is not just a commodity like if a family <clears throat> comes into possession of a piece of land in a lot of places in the world the goal is to pass that piece of land as many generations forward as they can and so that actually engenders a really different um, way of being in a community in a place if you're not intending to go somewhere else when your finances improve you know and or so to flip it yeah, or just a, it's not just something you can make money off of, or that that it's your home. Yeah. There's a lot of class inequity baked into the real estate commodification yeah. model. Uh, can code 
mitigate that somehow? Well, to to a degree. So there are some interesting um, things going on. There's, um, I, I, I wish, I don't have it at my fingertips at the moment. There, the, there was, there is an organization, the Rocky Mountain Land Use Institute, at the University of Denver Law College, actually, um, and, and they created a framework, which they called a Sustainable Community Development Code framework, and and it was really interesting because they were like gathering examples of more sustainable land use codes and and projects and precedents. Um, and, and that's been passed on. Um, I think it's in Vermont now that, and I apologize for not remembering um, where it is, but perhaps I'll dig it out and Christy can share that with you at some point in the future. But anyway, it's, it's, it's been revived and it's and so people are like gathering um, the best land use, you know, more sustainable land use ordinances and policies and codes and innovations, you know, and 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 making them more widely available, which I think is fabulous. When you know people come up with solutions, but nobody knows about them. You know, they might help a given place, but they could have a much larger impact if people knew that they were out there. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it, it's important to know that these things are changeable and that um, people, ordinary people, citizens, you know, can get involved in these processes. And you know, when you see something that's problematic, and, you know, it could be problematic personally or individually, but if you see patterns emerging that are not serving the whole community, you know, then speak about them. Speak about them to, you know, your elected representatives at whatever level, city, county, state, federal um, let, let your let your voice be heard but do it in a way I mean to me we're hearing a lot of voices that are counterproductive in my view towards solving these problems for the future and for our children and our communities going forward and um, if if you if you don't if it's all about just me and getting what I want, then it's often problematic. And I've heard plenty of people complain about, well, this zoning code restricts my ability to do whatever I want with my land without thinking about the fact that if it wasn't there, their next-door neighbor might be doing something that they would find absolutely horrendous. And it's not just you. It's us. And the more we can bring that sort of us or we mindset into our work, trying to create the places that we want, we want and that we love and that we'll care about and that our neighbors will care about, you know, the, 
the more progress we can make towards solving these issues together and not leaving anybody out. And it's hard. We're not used to that. We haven't been taught that. Our education hasn't told us the real history, you know, of most places that we are, um, the land that we're living on that... How it became occupied. Yeah, what was not ours. Right. It, the people who were living here before didn't think of it as theirs. They thought of it as everyone's. And we changed that, and we took them took that land away and the management away. And one of the most encouraging things, actually, that I've watched happening over the last few years is the recognition of that history, but also of the wisdom and the care in those indigenous traditional ways of being on the land and with the land and the long, long time frames that are considered in decision-making that are so different. Or our, our sort of imagined, you know, well, these people just were, you know, they didn't have culture and they didn't have knowledge and, you know, and, and they were living in the wilderness. Well, actually, they were managing the land with fire and with other things, and they were paying attention to the impacts they were having and when resources were being um, depleted in, in in a place, or they were they'd live long enough to be polluting a place by their activities, they would move. They would actually. That's why there were a lot of nomadic tribes. They would move around with the seasons, you know. Or over time, they'd say, "Okay, well, it's time for us to let this area come back." And let's move to another place and manage that place for the whole community of living beings, not just the people. They actually saw they they were related to mm. to you know everything were, has person status. Yeah, and I love that the and, tree people, the deer people, and that's all you know slowly reemerging in consciousness of a lot of people who are not from those tribes or those, you know, places, but getting reconnected to seeing um, to seeing the living world as a, you know, as relatives and uh, and maybe everything, maybe even things that we don't think are living, you know, viewing them as actually having rights as well. A family member, in fact. Yeah, yeah. So you're uh, living in Tucson, and DCAT is the uh, acronym for? The Development Center for Appropriate Technology. We have a website which is way out of date. <laughs> and, um, and actually, we've, for a, a variety of reasons, we've lost the ability to update it. So it needs to be recreated. But anyway, it's DCAT.net. If you go to DCAT.org, you end up at the Drug and Chemical Trade Association, which is kind of the opposite of what we're about. <laughs> um, but it, but anyway, it's DCAT.net, and there are resources there, but it needs to be updated. And, uh, and you know, we're part of a big network. Uh, and the uh, 
There's an organization, COSBA, the Colorado Straw Building Association, which is which is kind of migrating into the um, Rocky Mountain Natural Building Alliance, I think is what it is, and that's who just put on this conference in here in Moab. And um, uh, there's a California Straw Building Association, which is also not just focused on straw, but on natural building and, you know, looking at this whole spectrum of better building. And uh, if you want to, if you want to see some amazing stuff, look up Chris Magwood, M-A-G-W-O-O-D, and the work he's done at the Endeavor Center, at uh, Builders for Climate Action, the, the books he's written. There's a fabulous book if you're interested in thinking about or thinking about building. One of Chris's book is, books is called Making Better Buildings. And in it, he's gone through all the components and materials, alternative and conventional for building, starting from foundations on up, and looked at the life cycle impacts, the climate impacts, the um, embodied energy, you know, the pros and cons in these different materials. It's a, it's a fantastic resource for making better decisions about choosing materials and, and how to use them. I'm thinking longer term than yeah, we're used to thinking. In a, in, in a much, in a, in a well-researched, um, I mean, he's done the research to attach, you know, numbers, metrics. Back it up with some data. And, and yeah. that work led to his work um, related to, to embodied carbon and climate um, impacts, et cetera. And anyway, it's great to have... There are these amazing people. Bruce King was here, Ecological Building Network, another good, um, uh, great organization that Bruce is a structural engineer who's done a lot of really great work in uh, understanding, you know, how to build better buildings, looking at a lot of things. And he has a book, um, The New Carbon Architecture, and he and Chris Magwood have a book coming out in the spring that is about, basically about the climate impacts of buildings and what we can do about that. So there's a lot of really good work being done and uh, a lot of great information and resources out there. Um, May it be in the nick of time. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending a moment talking about the important things that are in the details, David. Well, you're you're very welcome. And it's it's a mix. Here's something I learned over the years that I think is really important. And that's that you need to know whether you're in the details or in the big picture and develop the habit of shifting your attention back and forth. And sometimes that's across time frames. Sometimes it's, you know, whatever lens you're looking through, um, you know, whether frame of reference you have, figure out how to shift it so you, you know, so you get to see things in in perspective and in proportion zoom and in relationship wide yeah, big tall yeah yeah <laughs> and so so you can see things in relationship to other things so that's 
that's been a critical um, skill set that I've had to learn and evolve over time, but it's so useful in making better decisions. Thanks again. Well, thank you, Christy. For more information about sustainable development and the code that supports it, please direct your browser to sustainabilitycode.org.